Over the last decade, we've seen a trend of countries reprioritizing their traditional energy investment thesis in order to mitigate climate change. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is resulting in significant fossil fuel deficiencies throughout Europe and will have an impact on Asia to some degree. As the world attempts to move away from using fossil fuels, alternative energy sources are becoming more important. But in the meantime, it's difficult to close the gap on global energy deficiencies. Nuclear is making a significant comeback as an alternative green source of energy, and electric vehicles are gaining popularity as well. And with them, there's a growing demand for lithium for battery manufacturing. Joining us to talk about uranium, strategic commodities, and carbon credits is Nicholas Picard, Portfolio Manager at Horizons ETFs. So stay tuned. Mike Philbrick is with me from Resolve Asset Management Global. Hit that subscribe button, give us a like, and leave comments. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Nick, it's awesome to have you on the show again. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Happy to be back. Nick, among other things, one of the mandates that you are on as a portfolio manager at Horizons is HURA, the Horizons Global Uranium Index ETF. What's happening in the uranium space and what's your outlook? Well, I mean, things have really, uh, things were already looking very good, um, you know, six months ago in, in the uranium space. The, the spot price was recovering nicely. Uh, you know, we spoke um, uh, in September about uh, what was happening in uranium and everything was uh, going in the right direction. And things have just been turbo boosted here in the past few months, uh, driven by the conflict in Russia, which has propelled fossil fuel prices to, um, you know, <laughs> atmospheric levels. And, and uh, uranium has followed suit because uranium is, a, you know, a decent provider of energy and zero emission energy at that. And, uh, you know, it, governments everywhere are now looking at ways to get energy independence from fossil fuels. Yeah, and that, that uranium side of things, too, the thing that I always remember is the, is the always-on type of power that uranium is that is such a great base power for uh, communities, industrial complexes, whoever's, whoever, whoever's using electrons, it's a great base rate of power, unlike some of the solar or wind-type uh, powers, which are a little bit more variant in their outputs. So is there is there a way for us to... Um, as a as a human civilization, if you will, if I'm going to go <laughs> to some large S, uh, can we bridge the gap between uh, where we are today and and zero carbon emissions without something like uh, nuclear? Well, I think it's just going to be very difficult. I mean, I think that you know uh, everyone talks about uh, you know wind and solar, but as you mentioned, uh, they're not on all the time. And uh, you know, I think. Uh, you know, it, wind is on, you know, kind of a third of the time you got solar, you know, it's on at least less than 50 just just from just from nighttime daytime. Uh, but uh, with cloud cover and whatnot, it's really only on like kind of 25% of the time. So to reach zero emission, you need baseload energy. Um, you know, hydro is one of the solutions. But even hydro, we're seeing all sorts of problems with with hydro capacity. We, we saw it early. You know, one of the things that drove uh, the energy crisis in Europe, even before 
um, you know, what we're seeing in Russia today was the fact that Norway was having capacity issues with their hydro um, and uh, the lack of wind in the in the North Sea. So we see that renewables and zero emissions, it's not going to be easy. And it looks like nuclear has to be part of that solution. And, and so how is that? How is that? I'm going to reference the Overton window again, which is just, the, you know, <laughs> the way societies go through uh, the, the viewing of a particular topic and how those views change over time and how we've gone through sort of the post Fukushima era. Hey, 2011, little earthquake. Oh, my gosh. Some serious issues on the on the nuclear side and and sort of denuclearizing. But now. It's a different set of views that we're starting to see uh, that that power source through the lens of. And I'm wondering if it, what are your insights, whether it's on U.S. energy policy, global energy policy, what are you seeing that's continued to sort of change the viewpoint out there as you're managing, you know, a couple of these sort of alternative commodity funds, whether it be lithium or uranium. Um, how are you seeing the change in that zeitgeist in the moment as you're as you're talking with uh, investors and and uh, managing the portfolio? Yeah, I mean, I think you know on the uranium side, we've basically seen complete 180s in terms of policies uh, from uh, you know from governments. Um, and if you look at the uh, U.S., for example. Uh, it started with Trump and the American Nuclear Infrastructure Act, which was uh, basically a way to get more, uh, you know, uh, incentivize uranium production and save existing nuclear uh, power plants. Uh, but uh, that, you know, it continued with the, the Democrats. The Democrats have traditionally yeah. not been for uh, uh, nuclear. And but in the la latest uh, you know, Biden administration, when they were elected, nuclear was part of that uh, platform. And they, it has not been the case for nuclear, uh, for, sorry, for Democrats, that hasn't been the case in over 40 years for them to openly support nuclear. So already you're seeing a big uh, change in, in their outlook there. Uh, the other one is Europe, uh, is yeah. in particular France. Uh, when Macron was elected in uh, five years ago, elections coming up now, but when he was elected five years ago, he had basically said he had a, a green environmentalist minister and they basically said they're going to reduce uh, nuclear from the existing 75 percent to 50 percent of, of total energy production. Still very high by, by most country standard, but they wanted to move away from nuclear and more into wind and solar. Well, once what we've seen in the past year with everything that's going on is a total 180 on that policy. They're now saying they're going to reinvest, build 14 up to 14 new reactors, and and they're they're not mentioning anything about reducing uh, uranium as part of the or uh, nuclear as part of the energy mix. Yeah. Um, you know, if anything, uh, one of the things that we saw that I just read in the news on Friday uh, was uh, Kazatomprom which is the Kazakhstan uranium uh, company, uh, state uranium company. And it's sold off from the high. It's sold off significantly since the Russian war began because it's gone down from about $50, uh, close to $50, to almost $25, mm -hmm. almost 50%. Uh, and mostly it's because people were afraid of the you know, policy implications given that, that Kazakhstan is a former Soviet republic. Well, just on Friday, 
Arana, which is the state French mining company, uh, they, they had a meeting with Kazadam Prom and said, we're committed to uh, you know, our joint venture here. We want to expand this uh, joint venture. We want to make sure everything um, you know, works because we, we need this uranium and we, we want to make sure that uh, we can still work together. And on that news, uh, the stock was up, you know, 10, 10%. So I think, you know, I think that there's, def there's definitely a lot of uh, countries who realize they need secure uh, energy. They need nuclear has to be part of that solution. And, uh, and they're, they're making sure that they're securing that, securing that supply. Yeah, it was also, uh, it was interesting to see also that in January, the... Um I don't. I can't recall the name of the authorities, but it was it, the, the folks who were on, in charge of uh, ESG uh, and taxonomy, and um, they made a change to allow for uranium to be included in in the green taxonomy in Europe, which now allows for uranium to be part of the ESG uh, investment category as well, openly. Yeah, and that was a big tug of war between uh, basically uh, France and Germany. Uh, Germany did not want it to be in the taxonomy, and and France did. Um, and uh, you know the other question mark was natural gas, uh, whether it should be part of the taxonomy. Uh, the Germans wanted it in there. A lot of people thought it was not the right thing to do, given it's not it's still a fossil fuel, uh, but new. You know, as we now know now, uh, Germany is incredibly reliant on natural gas, um, and they kind of yeah. agreed to agreed to disagree and said, "Look, you you can have natural gas. We we can have uranium, uh, but f uh, for nuclear. But for nuclear, this is a very very big deal, and I'll tell you why. Because um, one of the big costs in nuclear energy is not really uranium. Uh, it, it's the cost of building the plant uh, yeah. and and financing that." that cost because it takes five, you know, well, it should take five years. <laughs> Recently, it's taken a lot longer than that. Uh, but, you know, hopefully we, they, they can control uh, the timelines, but it takes a long time to build these plants. And so the cost of money, if you can borrow money cheaply, that really reduces the overall cost. So the fact that it can get into that taxonomy and get preferential investors or get investors more easily invested and more easily financed uh, that could be a big, uh, you know, th that's one of the reasons China has been able to uh, really uh, cheaply build a lot of their nuclear reactors over the last 10, 15 years. It's because it's all state finance at very low levels. And I think I don't think people quite understand too how um, how little how low a cost a portion of the cost production of the electron that uranium is in that whole production process, going from, you know uranium to electrons out the other end and how small of a cost component is maybe you can highlight that as well yeah well it, it is a very small cost uh, the nuclear fuel uh it only represents about you know 10 percent of the overall cost of operating a nuclear power plant and the uranium is only a, a part of that nuclear fuel cost i mean there's there's all sorts of other costs involved in enriching and whatnot and conversion and whatnot so so uranium itself is actually a small, a relatively small part of, of overall uh, cost for nuclear power plants. So they're fairly insensitive to the price. In fact, uh, you know, for the past 10 years, um, a lot of the contracts that were signed with the utilities are at much 
uh, higher levels uh, than uh, what we had on, over the last few years. What we see on the screen and what is reported in the press is the short-term spot level, uh, but that's not really what the utilities are paying. The utilities are paying long-term contract levels, uh, which went as high as $80 um, you know, in the last bull market. Um, so, you know, finally, after 10 years, well, a lot of these contracts were signed 10 years ago. Then after Fukushima, none of these contracts were signed anymore because people were thinking, well, we're not going to need nuclear anymore. Nobody's going to want that anymore. And so now, finally, utilities are realizing, uh-oh, my contracts are coming up. I got to start contracting again. And guess what? You know, <laughs> there's a shortage. And so that's, now we're seeing um, some real, I mean, you know, over the last couple of years, we saw a lot of investor demand. We saw some price coming up just based on the fact that, you know, supply uh, got really uh, uh, reduced over the last couple of years. But now we're really seeing the fundamental demand uh, come in. And I think Cameco said on their last conference call that they've seen more contracting in the first three months of this year than they did all of last year. So where are we on the supply side of that equation, though, with, you know, sort of call it a, I guess, a decade of underinvestment and, and underdevelopment of, you know, Greenfield's pro, uh, projects, Brownfield's projects? Where are we on that side? So we've got the demand equation sort of coming together strong. We've got some tightness. Do we see a lot of projects? I wouldn't think we have. We would, but where are we on the on the on the side of of having more projects, producing more of the uh, of the product in order to facilitate the need? Well, just yeah, that's an excellent question. And just just to get to back to where we need to, just to uh, get rid of the uh, supply deficit that we have right now. Just today, you know, forget any kind of new plants coming online. Just today, we're significantly below. Uh, what we need just to, uh, you know, just to get back to kind of a no deficit situation. Um, even if you brought back, um, you know, MacArthur River, uh, which is the largest mine in the world, which Chemico announced that they want to bring back, um, you it still wouldn't get you there. You'd have to get all the other mines that have uh, closed down. And some of them are pretty much closed, you know, are, aren't really going to produce any more uranium. Uh, Ranger... Uh, is, uh, is an example of that in Australia. That that's shut down. That's now no longer really going to produce any more uranium. Uh, uh, other mines like Langer Heinrich um, for the Paladins mine, uh, you know, that's four million pounds a year. That could come back online. There's a couple here and there, but you know, really, you're going to be relying on um, you know Cameco to bring back the 20 million pounds from MacArthur River, and they've said that in the process of doing that, they're only going to bring back. Uh, Cigar Lake at half its capacity to extend its mine life. Um, you know, one one of the also one of the question marks is how long are these mines going to go for? Cigar Lake was, you know, at full capacity was only supposed to go until the end of the this decade, and after that it was going to run out of of uranium. So if you're if you're looking at the supply demand picture, you know, in the short term, yeah, if you turn everything back on, you might be able to more or less kind of get there, but you wouldn't be able to get there if demand starts going up and you wouldn't be able to get there in 10 years. So, yeah. you know, like if things are going to run out, you got to start thinking about, because these mines take a long time to develop. Um, you know, one of the highest grade mines in the world um, uh, in terms of discoveries is the, the next gen aero deposit in, in the Athabasca Basin. You know, it was discovered, I think in around early last decade, 2012, 
you know, they've done some work, you know, now they're going to make a decision, they're probably pretty close to making a decision on, on what to do in terms of getting the project started. But that, you're not going to get uranium out of there, uh, out of that mine for another, you know, I don't know, five, six, seven years, um, <laughs> maybe more. So you, you really got to plan ahead. The, the, you know, in Africa, you have some projects in Africa where uh, the environmental permitting is a little bit easier, and so you might be able to get um, some mines in Namibia and some mines in Niger um, operating, but you're going to need you're going to need sixty, seventy, eighty dollar uh, uranium prices for that. Uh, right. So, yeah, it's uh, the supply and demand picture is is still uh, very very bullish in my view. Yeah, so very tight and. You know, one of one of the old adages is the solution for a tight commodity in, in, in higher prices is and low supply is higher prices. Higher prices get more production online. They justify the discounted cash flow models in order to make the investments happen. And I think we're in this very weird and unique situation where we've had a whole bunch of other pressures, uh, whether it be Fukushima, ESG, the mislabeling of ESG to some degree create a very, very tight situation, um, which, you know, is solved by higher uranium prices, which um, I think pretty much everyone is accommodative of at the moment, which is, so, the, is the nice <clears throat> part of it. Go ahead. It's pretty elastic right now, right? I mean, the price can go up substantially and have little or no impact on, on the continued demand. Yeah, no, uh, and yeah. I think you mean inelastic. Like basically, the, yeah, pardon me. Yeah, yeah, yeah it basically, the price can go up, and and you know, there's not going to be uh, uh, an equivalent uh, supply a reaction for for years. Um, and yeah. you know, e e we're even looking at um, you know some of these uh, smaller companies. There's still a lot of you know they they rallied initially, but they haven't really done that that much in you know since the that initial rally there's there's still I, I believe there's still going to be a lot of m a um i don't think this bull market is going to be over until you start seeing major miners deciding you know what we have to be in uranium like we this is going to be part of the energy future it's no longer you know right now you look at the major uranium producers it's just chemical and kazetum prop that's all they that's all they yeah. do you you got to get more uh you know you have Olympic Dam, uh, and you have some uranium byproducts uh, in, in, by, in, in barracks mines. But for the most part, the major miners haven't really been involved in the uranium space. And I think as they see this transition happening, they're going to be looking for projects to acquire. And that's when you really are going to get some, some major price movements. Nick, where do you see the price of uranium going? If you would ask me six months ago, I would have said, you know, uh, you know, $60, $70 where you would have gotten, uh, you know, in the short term. I, we're here now. Um, one of the things that's changed over the last six months, of course, with all this inflation, is that the break-even uh, price for all these companies in terms of, you know, starting production, it used to be $60 last year. Uh, now it's going to be higher than that. Right. <laughs> so, so now, you know, just like the price gone up, and you know, the, the break-even price has gone up as well. So I think we could definitely in the short term, uh, we, could, we could get to, um, you know, $70, $80. And I think eventually, uh, you know, we overshoot that as the demand picture becomes clearer. Right now, I think it's really been driven by um, the demand from investors, uh, which, you know, we should talk about that a little bit. That's been pretty significant. Uh, but also 
you know, the, re the reality on the ground, which is, you know, governments, like we mentioned earlier, governments everywhere are realizing we have to, you know, we have to make sure that uh, we, you know, s secure supply and that we're, you know, we, we, this is, uh, you know, an important thing for us and that we support this industry. And so I think investors have reacted to that. Um, but I think, I think eventually, just like every bull market in, in any commodity, uh, you know, things are going to overshoot. And so I think I think we could easily get to over a hundred dollars. And what about the? We'll talk. We'll come back to the demand from individual investors too, because I do want to pull on that thread a little bit. But before we go there, I also want to just touch on or understand that there's there's a lot of talk of the sort of smaller size modular sort of uh, reactors that right. are a little bit more mobile, set up more quickly, and also use um, spent rods or spent fuel in order to provide. Uh, some sort of fuel for their for the reactors. How real is that? How true is that? How close is that to a reality? Is that kind of sort of pipe dreaming, or is that is that a real thing? I, I think that I think that is a real thing. Uh, I, I think that uh, you know there's there's projects now uh, in the U.S. in Canada, um, in in Europe, uh, in, in you know depending on your definition of an SMR, a small modular reactor. Uh, you know, there's one. There's, they're operating in Russia and China uh, already. Um, the whole idea with with SMRs, they're they're not that new or that uh, you know that uh, incredibly uh, innovative in the sense that you know they you know we've had small modular reactors in in uh, we've had them in in uh, nuclear submarines for right. you know a long time. Um, <clears throat> right. And so, you know, they operate very well in these submarines and, uh, you know, so these, they're just, what makes them interesting and why people are starting to talk about them more is that, can we start mass producing these? Can we put them in a factory setting where, because most, as we talked earlier, most of the cost of building uh, uh, nuclear energy is in the building of the plant and, and uh, that costs a lot of money. Uh, but can we can we get can we reduce that cost by uh, creating a factory-like setting where most of the costs are contained and you know you can fast track the production of these things? If it takes you ten years, if you have to borrow money for ten years uh, to build anything, it's yeah, it's going to be expensive. But if you can build the same thing, even if it's slightly more expensive, because you know one of the problems with SMRs is that because they they're smaller on a cost per watt basis, it ends up being more expensive because you're not maximizing the, the total power. But if you can reduce the timelines from 10 years to six months, and you can, and you can then kind of copy paste all over the place, um, you know, then maybe you get to a point where, where it's um, you know, competitive. And that, so we're not, we're not there yet because you know, uh, they're still getting approvals on, on these. I think Canada aims to have uh, their first SMR up and running by the end of this decade. I think the U.S. is maybe a year before that or something like that. Um, but uh, with new scale, I think can't I forget? Uh, uh, I, you know, the Ontario government is uh, working with I think Saskatchewan and New Brunswick. They they had an agreement on on working with the SMRs. So there's a lot of policy and a lot of governments are looking at SMR because they're safer. Uh, you know the new the new designs uh, don't melt down. Uh, they they have 
they can fit better within kind of a solar and wind. Like you can just kind of pluck them in different areas. Uh, but more importantly, for for a country like Canada, you could put an SMR in a in a mine in in uh, you know in in anywhere in northern Quebec or northern Saskatchewan or wherever, where it's very hard to get electricity and very hard to get a grid. And you could right. use that instead of diesel, which is actually a lot more expensive than than most electricity generations. So so there's there's a lot of application. I think we'll see those applications come potentially out first, where, you know, on an islands where, you know, electricity is expensive or in other places where where electricity is, is expensive. So, Nick, in all this, there sounds like there's a, a, a huge opportunity for a high end labor force as well. Can you expand on how, what are the implications for employment growth in this or in this type of industry versus other uh, energy industries? Yeah, well, I think, you, we, you know, we can we can joke about it. But, uh, you know, like if you look at uh, Homer Simpson's job, right, and uh, at, at the uh, at the power plant. Uh, he, you know, it's a high, it's technical, high paying job, um, which, you know, the, uh, all these countries that have nuclear are, sh are kind of increasingly short of, um, and, 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 uh, nuclear or EDF, which is the French, uh, electricity, uh, company is actually the third largest employer in, in France. And part of that reason is because these power plants one of the reasons they're expensive is because they, require, they do require a lot of labor to maintain and highly trained technical labor, which is fairly highly paid um, to keep these running. And so for, for governments uh, relative to solar and wind, which kind of, once you install it, it kind of, uh, it's a little less labor intensive. Uh, so this is kind of a good solution for, for employment as well. Um, and when these nuclear power plants uh, shut down in the U.S., I mean, that was one of the big things uh, with the Bruce power plant in Illinois. Uh, you know, it's the largest power plant uh, in the U.S. It was one of, one of the best safety records in the U.S. They had a very highly trained, uh, they have a very highly trained labor force. And they looked like they were all going to be out of a job uh, by, by this year uh, unless, you know, the government helped them. And so, you know, and so the government of Illinois basically said, we got to we got to do something. You know, this is zero emission energy of which, you know, we don't have very much in Illinois. And and this is our the biggest power plant in the U.S. And we have all this job. If the if the if the Bruce power plant shuts down, you know, that entire town, um, you know, basically it ends up like a Flint, Michigan. And and so, yeah. you know, governments don't want that. <laughs> you know, they're under a lot of pressure to make sure that that doesn't happen to these to these towns and to these cities. And and so, you know, and now they can also say it's going to help get to, uh, you know, zero emission and you're going to save these high paying jobs that pay, you know, um, a lot more than than, you know, minimum wage. And and so, um, yeah, I think I think from that perspective, uh, it's an often overlooked, I think, uh, uh, argument. Uh, right. But when you're, when you're, you know, when you're, the nuclear power plant is in your constituency, that's something you're very aware of for sure. Yeah, and you, I, I can start to see how the, the puzzle pieces are sort of coming together mm -hmm. as you go through tightness in the su supply-demand dynamics, the, the urgency for more green energy, and the coincident, ener uh, the coincident need for 
whether it's build better, build back better, um, infrastructure plays that are long-term in nature that are going to create some sort of um, uh, sovereign uh, safety around the source of the energy power, the energy as well. So it really feels like this mosaic is is coming together. And well, yeah, uh, and 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 just to add to what you're saying, Mike, is is you know when you consider what the environmental toll uh, toll has been as a result of of shale and and you know in the Permian. Uh, that that environmental toll has been huge in terms of you know people complaining about gas coming out of the ground and you, you know yeah, yeah and then you've got all the, all the ramifications of the oil sands if you yeah. want if you want to talk about environmental well, there, yeah, there's that too. For, yeah. for hydrocarbons <laughs> and whatnot and, and maybe we can just now if if you don't mind can we circle back to that demand from the in, individual investors coming on board maybe and highlighting a little bit more let's pull on that thread so what are you seeing just generally so this initial thrust in demand has been largely driven by um yeah. investors yeah oh, investors sorry. who uh, so about six months ago i think in august um the uh, uh sprat took over the uranium participation uh, fund unit, which uh, fund, which was basically a fund that invested in in uranium. It got started in 2005, uh, kind of a during the previous kind of bull market in in uranium, and and uh, you know initially you know it kind of it did it did you know, I mean it did well, and of course with with the sell off in uh, prices in uranium, it kind of like you know was lagged. In, in kind of a bit of a laggard for, for, you know, the better part of last decade. Um, and, you know, things started to pick up again a little bit. And, and Sprout really saw an opportunity to, um, uh, they saw an opportunity uranium. They've also actually acquired uh, an ETF uh, in the U.S. that tracks uh, uranium stocks. And so they, they've become very bullish on uranium, and they decided that the Sprout Physical Trust was a good Good way to um, uh, you know uh, play that, and you know the demand you know uh, a credit to them they, they've been able to generate a lot of interest uh, in the sector, and they've bought I think some I got I got to look at my exact the exact numbers but it's they they've bought uh, you know tens of millions of uh, pounds of uranium like uh, you know more than uh, the largest mines produce. Uh, you know, in, in a year, and and it's been uh, relative to the size of the original fund. The original fund was 600 million. Uh, it's now up to two and a half billion dollars, and that they've done that in six months. And so I think I think what's happening here is what's really kept the price uh, low in uranium for for a long, long time was the excess inventory that had built up over the years. So what happened? What happened with uh, Fukushima, of course, is, uh, you know, Japan shut down all their plants. Uh, China put their uh, plans on hold for, for years. And Germany shut down uh, a, good portion, uh, a good portion of their plants. And so you had all this supply uh, that was going into these utilities that didn't need them anymore. And so those utilities, they have all this extra uranium, and they kind of piled up, and they said, well, we got to start selling it. And, and so over the years, they're slowly selling it, but there's, there's no real buyers in the short-term spot market. So, you know, they've basically just been, you know, slowly selling and keeping the price low. And 
nobody knows exactly how much of a secondary inventory exactly is out there because a lot of that inventory is earmarked for future electricity generation. So it's hard to dissociate, well, how much inventory is really available versus how much is, is there but required. Um, but I think we're about to find out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah, the, there's the stock and there's the flow. And we, yeah. We, we, yeah, we're using up the stock and now the flow is getting a little tight too. So the stock yeah. flow is a little off. But exactly. That, that, that is, um, that's really interesting. We've talked about the price, the outlook for the commodity and the supply demand factors. What about the uh, companies in the sector that that are part of uh, the index? The index that uh, well, can we up? just b before we yeah. go to the companies? And I think that's a great next place. I also wanted to just highlight how uranium is unique in in the commodity space. In that, it's not really like a there's not a highly liquid futures market for uranium, right? This is this is pretty serious product that one needs to be highly regulated to handle. And so I wonder if you could just, before we go to the companies, let's just one last point on uranium and why it's such a unique asset class and why funds both like uh, that are managed at Horizons, like Hurrah, and I know you have a portion of that that is actual commodity underlying as well as right. the stock. So you've got yeah. a nice mix of those yeah. things. So, you don't, so you, if you're an investor, you can kind of buy it all in one spot. But maybe highlight the sort of the unique nature of the uranium commodity market before we go to the companies. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, uranium is is really unique in, in the sense that, well, you know, first of all, as you say, there's no futures market, so there's 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 really no way for speculators to really um, uh, make markets in it. And so, what ends up happening, and these cycles are very very long term cycles in the sense that most of the buying and selling happens for long-term contracts. So there's not that much discovery in the short-term market. And because there's not that many participants, there's that much uh, you know, price discovery in the short-term market, um, you know, prices can really move a lot more on the short end than they would otherwise if there was a liquid, uh, you know, if there was a liquid market. Um, and you know, the other thing is it's a very long cycle in terms of the bulls, the bull markets and the bear markets. Uh, you know, if you look at oil or if you look at, you know, natural gas, it's relatively uh, easy to increase production if, if the price moves up. Uh, so, I mean, right now we're in a very distinct situation. Uh, but for the most part, you know, if the price of oil goes up, you can start producing more oil, uh, you know, drill more oil. You know, there's the, the lag is not huge in terms of, of, of getting more production out there. Uh, but with uranium, um, you know, you, you make a decision to uh, build a uranium mine that takes a long time getting it to production. Everything takes a long time. You, you, it takes 10 years to get that project up and going, uh, sometimes more. And similarly, so that's the supply side that takes a long time. And similarly, on the demand side, it's very long, uh, you know, cycles with nuclear power plants, just building them takes 10, you know, five to 10 years. And then and then, and then once it's up and running, it's up and running for 40, 50, you know, now mm -hmm. 60, 70 years. So these are very, very long dated cycles. And so it ends up being very, when bull markets, they get really, really high and then they get, you know, and then you get very, very low bear markets. And so we had this uh, bear market that lasted for, you know, eight years or nine years. And, uh, you know, I think we're still at the beginning of a, of a long bull market. 
now over to you, Pierre, for the <laughs> the company. I don't know if you had any specific. Uh, I don't know if you had any specific yeah. company. Well, uh, you you know, or... you there's the two uh, there's the two largest producers, uh, Cameco and and Kazetomprom, and I think you 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 talked about Kazetomprom in the beginning about how the uh, the stock price was down fifty percent uh, because of the uh, reaction to to uh, the policy threat uh, because. Kazakhstan is a former Russian Republic, but, and then how that sort of, uh, turned into an opportunity for investors getting at those levels, uh, because of the change in, in sentiment. Yeah, no, so absolutely. And I, I mean, I think, you know, cause, cause Prom, at these levels, uh, these price levels relative to where the price of uranium is, I mean, they are the low cost producer and, and, you know, with uranium at sixty dollars, if you're buying a Kazan prom today at this price, you're you're pricing in a lot of political risk. I think I think that you know uh, if it wasn't for the political risk, the price would be a lot higher. Um, and so I I think that if you feel comfortable with that risk, then then you know it certainly it seems to be me it seems to me that it's 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 certainly an opportunity. And if I if if I look at the uh, HURA ETF, the only reason it's not at new highs today relative to uh, where it was in November is because uh, the Kazetan price has come down so much. Um, you look at Cameco, it's at new highs. You look at the uranium price, it's at new highs. Um, and, but I think there's also some opportunities in some of the smaller names. Uh, you know, the smaller names, they initially uh, uh, did extremely well uh, uh, on the initial. And then they kind of, you know, they've kind of settled down a little bit, uh, and and I I wouldn't be surprised to, uh, you know, if if uranium prices keep going the way they are, they're gonna they're gonna place some some catch up, you know. One of the tricky part uh, with with uranium companies, of course, is right now there's really only uh, a handful of companies that are actually producing uranium right. and so and so for a lot of these other companies you you know there is some risk in terms of uh, you know uh, building the mine and and producing and there's all these risks associated with with uh, going through that process and you know that's why I always kind of advocate for a diversified portfolio approach where where you're buying a lot of these different uh, you know companies and projects and and so that if one if one doesn't work out uh, you're still benefiting from all the ones that do. The, the other thing that I'm reminded of as you talk about Kazeta problem is, is the, uh, you know, the deep water horizon debacle that occurred where, uh, you know, BP was marked down an awful lot because of all the potential risks and, and the, the choice you have, I mean, there's risks. If you're going to go and find a bunch of junior producers that are looking for projects, trying to develop them, get them to production, that's a whole set of other risks. There's sure. regulatory risk in there. With Kazetaprom, you don't have those risks. You have political risk, but yeah. you know that the, the commodity is there. You know it can be produced. You know it can be delivered. So it's just a slightly different set of risks that you know I think would be quite complementary in a portfolio. I, I, I like you, would, would opt to have both. You know, if, if you go back and look at BP, it was steeply discounted and then, and then recovered through time. Um, and that's... It's again, there's risks everywhere and you have to, you know, factor in the risks you want to take. And, and um, if it's a, a political risk in there is an interesting one to consider, especially given the current valuation. It's kind of an interesting paradigm where if everyone's 
running out of the theater because someone's yelled fire, you might want to pick up a ticket or two. I don't know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and you know, uh, uh, and, and you know, a lot of lot of um, investors have really said, okay, well, I'm just going to buy, uh, you know, a Cameco because it's the biggest one and it's it's in Canada and it's it's um, you know it's fairly liquid. So for for bigger investors, they might just think, well, the liquidity's there. You know, but the fact of the matter is, you look at the uranium space today, and and uh, you know a lot of these a lot of these investments are becoming more and more liquid. There's more and more liquidity now in the the the, the, the spot trust. There's more liquidity in the in the ETFs than there was before. Um, and and you know, Chemco is is a is a great company. I think they'll they'll do great. But if you look at their two biggest assets, um, you know, you have Cigar Lake, which is probably going to run out. You know. Um, in the next 10, 15 years. And then you have MacArthur River, which, you know, that's kind of their, you know, flagship operation, but it's it's a complicated mine. And they shut it down four years ago uh, because the market was bad, but also because it's a tough mine. And and they're gonna have to restart that. That's, that's not a zero risk, uh, you know, event. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if Chemical has to go in or, or if Chemical wants to Acquire other companies and say, you know, now that our stock price has done so well, uh, why wouldn't I go and use my paper to uh, secure more supply down the road? Uh, so, I, you know, I think there's going to be, I think we're going to see some activity. Yeah, in, right. in the space. I think you you nail it in that. Why? So you've got you've outlined the two mines that Cameco has. If you buy one company, you got those two mines, and you got one set of risks. To me, it it makes a lot more sense to diversify that across a suite of exposures both small cap large cap and some of the commodity which is why you know i think the the uh hurrah etf is particularly novel in that approach in that it has taken a, a sort of a very well diversified approach so that the investor knows well i mean you know if if uh prom or, or if a company has trouble my whole portfolio isn't in the dumpster fire which, by the way, all of those arguments about Cameco you could make for Kazataprom other than, okay, the jurisdiction is a little bit dodgy, but it is, you know, lowest cost producer and on and on and on. So it's hard to ignore that. And then you throw in, hey, by the way, we just put it on sale. Okay, well, again, you, you know, diversity, diversity through your portfolio is, is a benefit often, you know. It, uh, yeah. So Nick, apart from uh, you mentioned that that a lot of you know there's a lot of st uh, state sponsorship of development of nuclear. Um, what what do you see happening in uh, capital markets in terms of of money being raised for you know private sector endeavors around uranium? Uh, you mentioned Sprott. You mentioned uh, some of the activity that that sort of uh, triggered the rise in the price of the commodity this last year. But um, what kind of activity are you seeing in terms of investment banking? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a little, obviously, more activity now that uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, the prices have recovered, um, and you know, uh, the the junior miners, um, you know, they're always going to be looking for capital just to uh, you know forward their projects, and so we're we're seeing some of that. Um, but what what I haven't seen as much as I thought is a lot of. Um, Kind of uh, you know M and A activity in terms of uh, you know uh, uh, companies tying up or some consolidation of, of, of projects and whatnot to create like bigger bigger uh, uh, bigger uh, you know more diversified companies and whatnot. Uh, there's been a few things here and there, but I don't 
I think that's a sign that we're not we're not really in the in the 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 thickest part of the bull market yet. Uh, you know, we 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 see the regular kind of money raises from from the juniors to kind of forward. You know, like I need five million bucks to kind of do a PFS or or something like that. Mm-hmm. But but we 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 haven't really seen um, big big deals or or, or big 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 M and A activity um, uh, yet. And I, th- so I think, I think, um, yeah, I think that, I think that's, that's likely coming though. So altogether, very positive fundamentals on. Yeah, on, no, uh, I, I, yeah. I, absolutely. And I think one of the reasons that we haven't seen, uh, you know, a lot of that is because you know, people don't want to sell yet. Like if you, if you yeah. have an, if you, if you have a, a, a good project, um, that you're, you know, you're slowly bringing to, you know, production, why would you want to sell? Uh, you know, right now the outlook looks very, very good. Uh, you're going to want to you want to keep most of that upside. Once the M once the M activity starts in earnest and you're starting to see a lot of companies sell, that's maybe when you want to start to be a little bit more concerned. I was wondering if we'd switch gears to uh, another commodity that doesn't have a futures contract underlying it, where investors can get access as well. So I, well, I didn't let, know let's if we talk would... about lithium. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> So we got all kinds of alternative. This should be the alternative energy uh, show today. But uh, yeah, let's talk about lithium, Nick. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I think lithium is interesting uh, because it, I mean, it's an amazing demand story. Uh, you you look you look at the 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 demand uh, on, on lithium and and how it's really uh, you know uh, started to uh, grow uh, exponentially, I guess, in the last uh, you know couple of years and. You know, it, it always was going to uh, be that way, but I don't think the market really woke up to it until until uh, you know recently. Um, and you've seen price of lithium carbonate go from you know uh, up fivefold, uh, you know, in the past uh, you know kind of eight months or so. And it, you know, it's you know whereas battery prices had been going down for consistently. Uh, since 2012, basically down almost you know 80, 90 percent uh, on a, on a, um, a uh, uh, dollars per kind of kilowatt hour uh, basis. Uh, there, that finally was up uh, this year because of of, of the price of, of lithium, um, and you know the high prices of carbon, the high prices of oil in particular, and gasoline. The, you know the the big thing is of course the the price of gasoline in the United States, where they're used to getting really cheap gasoline, and and it's it's only going to increase the the and, and the speed at which people will be converting to to EVs and what and and what that entails in terms of demand for for lithium. And lithium's again not another one of those very unique. Uh, commodities where there isn't an easy way to get access, right? There, there isn't a futures market. There's not that type of uh, type of stuff. So, how have you guys thought about that in structuring the ETF that that you're running, and and how do you approach that? Yeah, and it, it, it's interesting because the the lithium uh, ETF, in a lot of ways, uh, as a commodity, like you mentioned, it looks like the 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 uranium ETF. It's it's a market where there's not that many big companies. Uh, you know that produce that are pure plays on lithium, and and um, there there is a very illiquid. You know, there's no futures market. There's kind of an illiquid 
uh, spot market, but most of the activity happens in the long, long dated contracts between battery manufacturers and, and between, uh, you know, the miners. And uh, I would have ideally set up uh, the lithium in the exact same way as they did, uh, you know, as we did HURA, which is some spot exposure uh, through kind of a, 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 a company that owns uh, lithium and, and, and the stocks. Unfortunately, we don't have any companies that, you know, that do that. And so basically the, the ETF just focuses on, on the, the lithium uh, miners. But one of the things that we didn't want to do is have something that's too integrated. Uh, we didn't want to have the battery manufacturers in there. We didn't want to have the EV companies in there. We really just wanted to focus on the commodity itself so that it's, it's a commodity-related ETF. It's not, it's not a right. bet on electric vehicles. It's, not a, it's really just a bet on the, on the commodity. Because high lithium prices might mean that battery manufacturers get squeezed. Because on the one hand, EV uh, companies, they're not, they're going to say, well, we're not going to pay more for this battery. We, we need to stick to our sticker price of, you know, $50,000 for this car. And so we're going to pass, we're going to force you to take the costs. Uh, and so you, you, I could see a scenario where uh, the battery uh, guys kind of get squeezed a little. And we already see that from Tesla. Tesla has already basically said, mm -hmm. we got we to gotta vertically integrate this because <laughs> yeah. we don't want to be on the hook for for these fluctuations in lithium prices so we, we you know they, i wouldn't be surprised if they made a big acquisition of some lithium deposits and try to vertically integrate themselves so that they're sheltering themselves from from the volatility in 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 the lithium price but in the short term there's just not enough lithium being produced today as you as you were saying that i thought that exact thing what a great hedge to your tesla position or yeah. you know what input auto manufacturer name here in that um, you're going to buy a, a, a suite of these uh, producers of this very highly desirable product. So we've got a we've got the demand side obviously you know kind of exploding. We've already seen a five x on on the lithium price. What what's the supply side looking like? So you mentioned there's just not enough being produced. What's the gap like? And what do we see in projects coming on board and investments in that area? It's a little bit different from than uranium in that uranium was going through this sort of cloud of Fukushima period where lithium has been a little bit more in the sunlight for a number of years. So, but how is that differentiated on the supply side or has it? Yeah, I mean, it has been. And so I think there's been uh, potentially like, you know, more and more projects, more investment in lithium. But I think, I think for the most part, uh, industry thought that it would be, you know, slower, the demand curve would, would grow slower. And so even though there's lots of projects and lots of, uh, you know, lithium being produced, it's not growing fast enough relative to, um, you know, where the demand is growing from. So, you know, most of the um, lithium, uh, you know, reserves are in Latin America. They're in uh, Argentina, Chile, and Bolivia in, in their salt flats um, where you can get lithium brine extracted. Um, Albemarle, SQM, they all have, the, the, they're the biggest lithium producers. They all have projects in that area. But I think we're we're going to see the the biggest growth, and because I think that's one of the um, uh, you know, where the Chinese are really getting involved as well, is in Australia and the spodumene uh, lithium deposits, because that's in a way that's more conventional mining. It, you know, it's open pit, scoop it up, 
you know, it's it's a it's the lithium's in a rock as opposed to in, in, a, in a brine, um, and and so um, you know a lot of these big projects are coming online, uh, you know, from from that perspective. Uh, so you know, there's there, but what what we saw recently is um, um, more and more uh, uh, recently uh, one of the one of a big company out of Australia, uh, uh, IGO took a 50% uh, stake in a big lithium mine, uh, the Greenbush mine in Australia, you know, realizing, you know what, this is mining, this is something we know, we mine other metals, we mine cobalt, we mine nickel, we know, we, 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 these are battery metals that we want to be involved with. And so it just makes sense for us to add that as, as, part, of our, uh, as part of our portfolio. And, and uh, whereas I think, the the brine the lithium brine projects that's been more specific to uh, companies that kind of specialize perhaps in that and so we've seen Albemarle we've seen um, SQM these are these are companies that don't um, you know that really focus on lithium but now we're seeing uh, some bigger uh, mining companies getting involved in these uh, 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 spot projects. And so where are we with valuations? Sort of that, that sector has had a bit of a pullback in the, in the last sort of call it six months or so, maybe four or five months. And yeah. so where, where are we at with, with valuations? Where were we at? Where are we now? How, how do you see them growing into those valuations if that's the case? Or what, what are your thoughts there? Well, what's interesting is that even though we've seen the, the lithium prices basically, as like, like I said, even though they're up, you know, five times, uh, you know, in the on the short term price, what's a little less clear is, you know, what the long term, what that's going to mean for the long term price. Um, but certainly, uh, the stock prices haven't really reacted that much to uh, this huge uh, boost in prices. Uh, you know, they're up, but they're not up like they would be if people were pricing in the current lithium prices. Um, you know, in, in, in a kind of an uh, NPV model. So, so there's a couple of reasons. I mean, obviously, uh, there's a lot of lithium, uh, you know, and, and so in the world. And, and, and so maybe it's just a matter of, of uh, you know, funding these projects and getting them out of the ground. And people think that maybe the, the price will come down. Uh, and there's also a little bit of political risk, which is, um, you know, something uh, that you got to, maybe worry about in Chile right now, they're kind of rewriting the constitution. They had these, uh, you know, they had the, the, the new president of, of uh, Chile um, is, used to be kind of a student firebrand. I mean, there's always some fear mongering going on. I mean, they said that about Lula uh, when he got elected in Brazil and it turns out, you know, he, he was, he, everyone thought he was going to be the next Chavez and it turns out that he was, he, he, he governed in a much more, Left of center type, uh, you know, government and he and, and Brazil economy and stock market did fine, uh, but there is some risk with Chile that you know they say that they want to potentially nationalize copper and lithium mines and they're one of the largest lithium producers. So so you know and that's why again you kind of want to have that that diversified approach where uh, you know you're not taking uh, risk on just one uh, jurisdiction or one or one company. Um, but more than this, you know, more than the supply, I think this more supply will come online, but I think, whereas I think uranium is both a supply and a demand story, uh, I think lithium is really a demand story. I mean, I think yeah. the demand could just 
really explode. I mean, you know, next year, according to uh, uh, Bloomberg uh, research, the outlook for next year is to sell 10.5 million uh, vehicles, uh, uh, electric vehicles for next year, which is 50% more than, than what was sold in 2021. And, also, and I think three times more than what we had in, in 20, 2019. Uh, so th that's huge growth. But mm -hmm. ten and a half million versus the number of vehicles in the world today? <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. nothing. That's a drop in the bucket. And and even with just that growth, um, you know, the the market is already buckling. Like they could already can't handle that the, that kind of demand. The, the Chinese are running around trying to secure supply by buying projects and and getting involved wherever they can to secure supply and. We're at ten and a half million. Uh, so you know what what yeah. happens when we get to twenty, thirty million? I mean, well, hundred million. The, that's next. Yeah, that's hundred million. I mean, these numbers these numbers are big. Yeah, yeah. That's, well, they're two thousand twenty four. Yeah, yeah. Well, and they, and they're they, they're they're big numbers, but they're small in the context yeah. of the overall car market. I mean, they're they're minuscule still. That's what I mean. Yeah, it's yeah. still it's still only like I think in China, which is the biggest market. Um, in terms of EVs, in terms of EV penetration, I think it's up to close to, um, uh, I'm, I got to check my numbers, but it's somewhere between 10 and 20%. I'm, 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 I'm being uh, uh, fairly wide here. But if you, look, if you look at the United States, it's only 3.5%, it's less than 5%. You know? That means you know, that's, that's a lot of cars. Sure, if, if we're all driving EVs in 2030. I'm know, driving we, one now. There's one car for every man, woman, and child in the U.S., right? Or, I, I, well, I'll be jealous every time I go fill up, fill up at the tank. I'll be thinking about you, who's basically uh, fueling up for nothing. <laughs> I, will, I, I, I will say my personal experience is that when, once you do drive an electric car, you will have trouble going back to a, a uh, petrol engine, um, other than the sound, the nice roary sound that you could get from a, a nice sports car or whatever. But, uh, yeah, it is an interesting set of uh, scenarios there where – uh, you get in it. It's a better drive. I mean, if you want to go for an eight-hour drive, maybe not. But <laughs> yeah, no. Well, absolutely. Then you have to you have to stop somewhere and take yeah. a take a you know half hour, forty-five minute break, right? Yeah, get a charge up. But everyone yeah. will you know again as the as the acceptance rate increases, everyone that's going to be just a normal thing. Or the range will get lar longer, and and certain folks will be uh, opting into whatever range they want, paying more or less for that in their vehicle. Well, one of the one of the other things that because we, we mentioned the demand side, but we, and one of the things we talked about with uranium was the 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 political support. I mean, the, the political support for EVs is more unanimous than than it is, uh, you know, for nuclear. And nuclear is still a little bit divisive. I think I think people are coming along, uh, but but it's still not unanimous. Whereas EVs is becoming close to as close to uh, unanimous as you're going to get uh, in any political uh, debate. And, and, you know, the number of countries that have set hard targets uh, from between 2030 and, and 2040 or 2050 in terms of saying we are no longer going to allow the sale of internal combustion engines after this date uh, means that, you know, there's a very distinct timeline by which you have to get all this lithium out of the ground. And I, I, that's one thing that politicians don't necessarily think about is the process by which the market is going to uh, allow for that for that um, for that kind of growth. Love it. Is there anything that we've forgotten to ask you about lithium? 
No, I think we did a pretty good job of uh, of covering it. I think, uh, yeah. I mean, I think lithium is really a, a huge, huge d demand story. Uh, I mean, the one the one thing, just to put it in order of magnitude, I always like to, you know, for the last kind of 25 years, we've gotten pretty used to, um, you know, uh, portable computers and, and laptops and, yep. and smartphones. And so we all know lithium. We all have lithium batteries around us. Um, we know how uh, useful they are. But if you look, so, you know, lithium demand has been growing for, for a long time. But if you compare the order of magnitude, a laptop uses eight lithium cell batteries. Uh, uh, an average EV uses 5,000. Uh, <laughs> that's just the there order of magnitude we're, look, yeah. we're looking at. I mean, that, you know, everyone has a car and a portable computer, but that car is going <laughs> to require a yeah. lot more lithium. Well, that's the story, right? The story is that, like, I like your point, Nick, is that, you know, this, this story is unfolding right in front of our eyes. We're, 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 we're so, you know, but maybe we're taking it for granted a little bit or we don't, we don't understand the fundamentals of the lithium market, but it's an amazing story, you, you, you know, to, to uh, forego it because of a misunderstanding would be, uh, would be terrible. Yeah, it's it's one of the it's going to be I think one of the huge trends of our of our lifetime. Just like you know the adoption of you know internal combustion engines, uh, you know was yeah. you know the first time around. Yeah, the adoption of the of the the laptop portable computer, right? And in, yeah. in, in the lithium use. Now I wonder if if so we've talked about two kind of very interesting alternative energy plays that are a little bit different. Very early, don't have you know sort of fully developed. Um, commodity markets and things like that and getting into that how are you seeing the response from the sort of ESG front on the topic of mining because at the end of the day both of these products are mined mining is particularly dirty it's particularly environmentally impactful we talked about a number of jurisdictions that have varying degrees of social government governance when it comes to human rights. So how how is the sort of the investment world grappling with, hey, we need these products to get green, but they're <laughs> kind of dirty. And what are you seeing? Is there any movement towards, you know, being more particular about where you're sourcing your product from or from the companies that it's coming from or a higher level of ESG accountability for those mining corporations? Are you seeing that more on a, on a, on a grand scale? And, and how's that impacting things? Well, so, I mean, you know, on the, on the corporate side of things, uh, certainly all the companies, um, you know, involved in lithium and, and in particular, and, and uranium as well, they're all very focused on the impact of, you know, reducing the carbon footprint and what their product can do to help that. And, uh, you know, every company today, you know, it's been incredibly incredible to see how, how focused companies today and all the, all the mining companies are focused on ESG and showing what they're doing um, you know, uh, to to uh, improve uh, environment, social, and governance. Uh, you know, for what they do. Um, on the investor side, it's a bit of a different story. And uh, you know, I think it. I think it. You know, it it, it kind of depends. Some investors kind of understand that that um, lithium, in particular, has to be part of 
you know, EVs and it, there's, you know, if it's not lithium, it's going to be some other metal or some other, you know, you got to, you got to take that, you know, you got to mine that stuff somehow. So I think there is a realization, um, you know, but, it, uh, and so that is um, certainly on the radar. Are, I'm not sure that that translates into that much more investor demand, but it's certainly, certainly um, uh, there, you know, uh, you know, they, they would be aware of that. Um, on the uranium side, it's still a very divisive uh, uh, thing uh, because, um, and we, ha we have a, a, an ETF focused on ESG, uh, and uh, the index provider, uh, that the, the index that we follow, uh, uh, that focuses on ESG metrics, one of the things that, that, that they say is that they will not invest in, in uranium because, you know, uranium is used for uh, energy, but it's also used for weapons. And, and so they feel like that, that doesn't meet kind of an ethical standard. Uh, so it, it, it's a very, you know, it's a very uh, divisive issue. I don't think there's any consensus. Um, some some are, see it as part of the uh, and, uh, uh, transition, uh, and, and, and some of them uh, do not. Uh, so, um, but I think what we are seeing is the, the decision makers, the the, the people who realize, you know, when the wind's not blowing in the North Sea and the hydro dams run dry in Norway, there is no energy anymore. So those are the guys who kind of say, well, you know, we, we, this has to be part of the solution. But in terms of, in terms of the ESG uh, investors, I think, it's, it's, I think it's, a, it's still a very split crowd there. Yeah, it's, it's a sticky wicket. I know it's a very difficult question. And, you know, to some degree, when you're looking at uh, uh, the, through the lens of ESG, and in this case, sort of environmental is what we're focusing on to some degree when we're talking about mining, there's the corporate structure, but environmental stewardship and those types of things. Um, I wonder if we're gonna see for the costs built back into you know reparations of mines, or we're gonna start um, to see, and, and that's to say that if you would like to improve sort of the environmental uh, side of the governance, one way to do it is to say, okay, well, we're just not going to invest into any of these, whatever, quotation, dirty companies. At the same time, you can make a massive amount of input, impact improving those that have been the worst offenders, right, in the past, or improving their ability to understand the impact they're having on the economy, and then building that back through the commodity value chain. Because if it's in fact we want to repair these, you know, mining sites, well, that has to be a cost that's built in to the commodity itself in order to feed back to the mining company in order to make these reparations. And that means yeah. higher costs to end users of these products that have these uh, commodities embedded in them. It's just a really, I think, you know, probably a little early on the question, but I think we're going to start to see more and more of that as we see the crisis necessity change of, well, we have to do it. And then, and then saying, okay, well, now how do we live with ourselves? What, how are we going to start to deal with the environmental impact of what we feel we have to do in order to have less oil being pumped, as it were? And that's a, <clears throat> that's a great segue to change gears again and talk about the uh, carbon credit opportunity. Yeah, hey. great. <laughs> Right. Wow, we're killing it. We're killing it. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So, uh, Nick, what do you, what, what's going on with carbon credits? I, I, before, before we jump into that, I, I, I just had to bring up again. I, did either one of you see the movie Anthropocene? Since no, I, I have it not. Is it, is it good? You know, it's it, as you know, as you were talking about, it's it's great. There's this whole there's this whole sequence about Germany in there about how they're ripping up the countryside for coal because they abandoned their their nuclear they shuttered their black their their nuclear facilities. Yeah. Yeah. But in in it, what I thought was ironic, you mentioned you know how much how big of an employer nuclear power is in France and how how much nuclear power there is in France, and then you know so so. What was ironic in all of that was again that that while Germany shuttered its nuclear facilities, half of them, uh, they also this year decided not to shutter the remaining half, um, and uh, they're they're stuck now with having to buy continue to buy gas from Russia, and because of their shortfall, they 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 have to buy nuclear power from France as well. So they're kind of caught between these two powers. They're caught, you know, on one side, they've got France selling them nuclear. On the other side, they've got Russia in the, in the middle of this war that we're in now selling, you know, having to be at Russia's mercy uh, to, to buy gas and hoping that Russia doesn't turn off the, uh, the, 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 tab. <laughs> the tap. Yeah. Um, and yet they're still squabbling over nuclear. They're still squabbling over, over taxonomy. They're still squabbling over... The stuff it, and and it, and and then and then if you come to the carbon credit situation, they're not taking that seriously either, right? I mean, we had a conversation with Hugh Hendry not too long ago, and he he brought up the fact that BASF doesn't care about the carbon permit system in in Europe until those carbon permits are 120 euros or 130 euros, right? And and they're largely ignoring they're largely ignoring the uh, not the opportunity but the use of those carbon permits. Uh, they're not taking it very seriously, but so I wanted to say that was my roundabout way of segueing into the uh, carbon permit system and the opportunity that's there for investors to participate. To you know that that, that that's actually a real opportunity for investors who want to align their portfolios uh, with you know with ESG in a, in a very direct fashion. The carbon permit system does allow for that. And and the European carbon market is is probably the most liquid and and uh, most developed uh carbon market in the world today i mean there's still you know there's other systems in california and um a few other uh, jurisdictions uh, but europe has kind of really led the way on uh on on the european on formalizing kind of a market for it and and um you know uh the price of carbon has gone up substantially uh, you know, in the past year, along with along with everything else, uh, you know, one of the side notes I I I would add on the, the whole Germany situation that you were talking about earlier is is that you know, uh, on on top of you know having to uh, mine more coal uh, because they shut down their nuclear power plants, they also spent uh, a vast amount of money on their energy wind uh, you know initiative that was supposed <laughs> to kind of basically make up for the, the loss of nuclear in terms of emissions. And after something like eight years and billions and billions and hundreds of billions, I think, of money spent, um, they have very little to show for it in terms of reduced emissions and basically still uh, have double the emissions that, uh, that, we have, that, that they have in France 
um, which has uh, you know very little wind or solar, and it's most of their zero emissions are coming from uh, you know from nuclear. Yeah. So, so but even that won't change their mind. I mean, you know, I, I think the it's kind of ingrained in the German psyche uh, to be against nuclear. I don't really. There is some signs of that changing, um, uh, but you know, for the most part, uh, they they've they've been steadfast. It 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 you know it started in the 70s when they were you know they didn't like the the uh, the nuclear war prospect with east germany uh, which was their neighbor and and they it continued with chernobyl and it really at the, right. uh, you know after that it, it, they never really were able to come come around but in terms of the price of carbon the price of carbon has gone up i think something like three times uh you know in the past year and really it's just been tracking the price of natural gas in europe because what ends up happening, uh, you know, what ends up happening is uh, to reduce your carbon emissions, um, uh, effectively, uh, you re reduce your coal consumption and you, and you burn natural gas instead. And that reduces your emissions by 40 to 50 percent. And so, but once, once your natural gas price goes up too high, then it becomes profitable to buy coal and then buy the offsetting carbon credit mm -hmm. and then burn coal instead. And so as natural gas prices have gone up because the demand has gone up and now, of course, has gone completely parabolic because of what's happening in, in Russia, uh, effectively, it's just cheaper to buy coal and buy your carbon credit. And, and, and so, um, you know, that's kind of what's happening in the market. And it kind of puts a floor on those carbon credit prices because you know there's not much more there's no more you know natural gas uh coming and there's there's still growing demand for energy and and germany is a bit of in a bit of a tight spot um yeah. we've seen a lot of volatility in the carbon credit market recently most obviously because of the volatility in natural gas prices but also because now this energy crisis has become a huge political problem for all governments you know, they're out handing $100 checks to everyone so they can fill up their tank. Like, I mean, <laughs> it's become a real problem. Like, like, you know, people can't afford to live anymore with, because energy goes into everything. It goes into food. It, go, it goes into, it goes into your, uh, you know, production of any good. It goes into right. transportation. It goes into, you know, and obviously goes into your daily living of like, you know, uh, moving around. And, and so the cost of living has gone up massively. Uh, everywhere in the world, but in particular in, in Europe, because uh, the price of electricity has been so high. And, and you know, now they're like, well, maybe we got to we got to do the opposite. We got to re maybe we got to rearrange these carbon credits to make it cheaper so that we can get cheaper energy. <laughs> so they're, they're <laughs> you know, so and, you know, and that's that's causing, you know, ex, you know, excess volatility in the market as well, because now like investors are looking to, Oh well, what if the government's decided? Well, you know what? We're just going to hand more credits. We're going to hand increase the supply of these credits, um, and go the other way uh, because we're we're worried about high prices, which of course is the exact yeah. opposite thing that they should be doing, uh, because these high prices are really incentivizing the move to uh, you know uh, uh, renewable, clean energy. Yeah, they're trading they're trading actual carbon for paper carbon. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I think long term, uh, you know, uh, level heads will prevail. 
and and um, the the price, of, you know, because one of the interesting things about carbon credits is the whole the whole way by which they would work is over time you would reduce the amount of credits available, so that effectively you emit less and less carbon over time right. to eventually get to net zero, uh, which. Uh, you know, it's almost like even better than Bitcoin. It, it, forget the stable supply. You're going to have shrinking <laughs> supply. You know, it's going to be like, you know, potentially a Bitcoin on steroids. Uh, but there is political risk because just like Bitcoin, you just create another coin. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or, you, or, you could, or you could just branch out and, you know, b build your own Bitcoin cash or, or you know, just kind of do, you know. And so, uh, you know, so that it, it, that's one of the, there's a lot, you know, there's, you know, it's a fairly new market. I think, I think investors are still kind of getting uh, used to the idea. Um, but, but uh, you know, certainly an asset class that, that potentially is fairly uncorrelated to, to other, other assets. Although from the looks of it, it's still kind of energy, energy uh, dependent. Given that, how how has how's Horizons has structured the carbon credit ETF in order yeah. to facilitate participation for investors? And what are the top sort of two or three questions you're getting or fielding from investors? Yeah, so I mean, I think when uh, you know we first started looking at this uh, you know carbon credit idea for for an ETF, we started thinking, ah, oh, well, you know, we should have like um, you know maybe buy the credits themselves or you know, figure out a way to you know structure it. Um, and then you know at the end of the day, we just you know uh, a lot of our products uh, at Horizons are futures based, and and we thought you know this is the cleanest and most effective way to to do it right now is to just have a futures uh, based um, uh, ETF. And so what what uh, the ETF does, it just buys the the European um, you know uh, market, the European futures market, um, it, and uh, uses that futures market to gain exposure to uh, the carbon market. You know uh, that doesn't mean that over time, uh, if more markets uh, become liquid and 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 that uh, are become more investable, uh, perhaps at some point. Uh, you know, we you, you could expand uh, to to be to to be to get into more markets, but I mean, for now, uh, the European market is really uh, you know the most liquid, and and really with uh, an excellent opportunity because you know the Europeans are quite committed. You look at the green taxonomy, you look at all the work that they've done to get this market up and going. Um, you know, and what's nice about Europe, which is also the reason it's not great to be in Europe, it's extremely hard to do stuff. Like you got to get all the governments to agree. They all have veto powers. I mean, it's almost impossible to do anything. Uh, but once you agree, it's almost impossible to undo it. <laughs> so, so, so once it once it gets past the finish line, it's very hard to undo. Um, you know, that's yeah. one of the reasons why. You know the the once the, the green taxonomy with the nuclear uh, as one of the alternative energies that's included in it, that was very hard to get through the finish line. But now that it's in the now that it's made it, um, it's going to be very hard for it not to go forward. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, that's you know same thing with the carbon credit markets. I think it's going to be now that they've agreed on a system, nobody wants to go back 
and renegotiate with like all the different countries and say, are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? So I think that's a very, you know, whereas other jurisdictions, you know, maybe if there's a change in government, just saying, well, you know, we don't like it. You know, what if, <laughs> you know, what if, you know, Trump comes and he's like, I don't like these carbon emission initiatives. I'm just going to go the other way, right? Like you're at the mercy of, of one administration. Right. With, 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 uh, with Europe, you, you have all these countries that agreed and they all have to disagree, you know, agree to disagree, uh, you know, or, or agree to undo. Agree to disagree in the same way to undo. Exactly, exactly, done. exactly, yeah, exactly. If you thought it was hard to agree on something, wait till you agree that you made a mistake or want to modify yeah. it. I don't know what it yeah. is anyway. <laughs> but you have this decision by committee, basically. Yeah. 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 And so, um, and so I think, I think that this market is going to stay. Um, I th you know, and I think they're, um, you know, they, they don't, they're, you know, they're going to let the, the market price um, uh, uh, carbon and, and, uh, I mean, uh, you know, as as uh, um, uh, a proponent of free markets, I think that's that's a great way to do it. Yeah, and it's a great way for companies to, um, I guess, commit to and, and have a way to um, arb their exposure in that area, right? If they're uh, producing whatever carbon or offsets and things like that, then it's a way for the market to uh, put a price on what that is and for that to be factored into the cost of production. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, and I, you know, I'm not sure how the how uh, quickly or, or how uh, the penalties and, and whatnot. I'm not entirely sure um, how the you know they're going to fully be able to implement that. You mentioned the ASF, uh, you know, not not uh, 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 being too careful there. I, I think that as time goes by, um, you know, this is going to be becoming more and more uh, you know relevant. And, um, you know, and, you know, uh, companies don't want to, you know, these days, companies don't want a, a, a black eye on, on ESG matters. Um, you know, I'm always uh, kind of surprised. Well, I'm not surprised, but but uh, I'm always kind of interested to seeing, like, if you go to any company website today, I mean, ESG is the first thing you see. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, that is quite a gamut yeah. we have run. Three alternative assets just ripe for investment that's <laughs> <laughs> it's like the long term long term investment it's not not advice <laughs> not advice <laughs> oh, beautiful beautiful Nick, well that uh, was awesome yeah, yeah it was awesome Nick where, where can people find you if they want to look you up and uh, follow you and see what you're working on uh, sure. Well, I uh, yeah, they can go to the, our website at uh, Horizons uh, Horizons ETFs, um, and we have a blog uh, there that where we discuss some of the stuff uh, that we've been talking about today. And uh, um, yeah, so uh, that's probably the best way. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and and take a look at we sometimes do uh, uh, you know webinars for for investors and and whatnot on the on various topics. Uh, so yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, keep an eye out for those as well. Perfect. All right. Thank you, everyone. Who's your favorite character, Nick, from Atlas Shrugged? <laughs> I, I don't. I, I don't even know. To be honest, I've never even. Uh, I've never even read the. I've never. I'm embarrassed to say I've never read the book. So. Yeah. I always get my characters confused from the Fountainhead and and uh, when yeah. Atlas Shrugged. So I'm, I always will say the anyway. <laughs> no, you John know, Gull. You, John Gull. When you when you were. <laughs> 
<laughs> when you were talking about uh, just, and we'll wrap on this, but when you were talking about you know the political risk in Chile, it reminded me oh, of right, yeah, you yeah. know, of the uh, the part where the oasis, yeah, where yeah. Francisco Danconia, um, you know, draws all of the. Uh, you know, uh, intelligentsia of of, of uh, Atlas shrugged into into buying, investing in the Chilean copper mines, and and uh, you know there they are. They're all at a party together, and they get the they get the news flash that that Chile has nationalized all of their interests. Right, right, of course. And um, so, but you know, it's the times too, right? Look at like you know the. Uh, infrastructure that is uh, dilapidated um you know the uh the, the the way that political power is being wielded today with uh with putin and and uh so it's, there's just so many parallels that are happening again and uh you know from a book that was written uh, in the 50s so yeah, you know, don't don't they happen over and over again i i i, I remember one, one of my uh one of my favorite quotes from francis d'anconia what is it De francisco uh, d'anconia d'anconia was if you run into a contradiction check your premise you will yeah. find one of them is false <laughs> yeah. i love that i mean it's it's so true oh i have a contradiction yeah check your yeah. premise one of them's wrong <laughs> awesome all right